Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Well, good morning, everyone, or good day, as the case may be, whenever you hear this broadcast. This is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you today, as always, from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in cloudy and overcast Mashpee, Massachusetts. Now, speaking of cloudy and overcast, let's get to the weather. First of all, I'd like to say it's good to be back with you, having missed last week due to my travels to family in Chicago. We had a wonderful holiday season. Hope you did as well. And I hope you have a very happy and healthy new year. Now, looking at the weather, this may be the calm before the storm. And if we get a chance, we'll get more in-depth to that coming storm uh, later in today's broadcast. But today we're going to have some pretty moderate temperatures, although this morning when you get up, you will be facing uh, some frost on windshields and things like that nature. But it's going to get up to 43 degrees today, partly sunny but mostly cloudy later in the day with occasional rain. Now tonight, we start to have some trouble. It's going to get down to a low of only 39 But winds gusting past 50 miles an hour here on the Cape and the South Shore with rain. And then moving into tomorrow, the 10th of January, we're going to have an unseasonably high temperature of 52 degrees. And we're going to have morning downpours. Cloudy, very windy, and as I said, mild temperatures with an overnight low of 37 So tonight that storm kicks in, and tomorrow morning with downpours, cloudy, and very windy. Then Thursday we kick into some nice temperatures heading into the weekend, into the mid-40s and low 50s, if you can believe that, for January. So following the storm on Tuesday night, tonight and Wednesday, we get a high of 44 degrees on Thursday with mostly sunny skies, an overnight low of 32 Friday, much of the same. 43 degrees, mostly sunny, breezy in the afternoon, and an overnight low of 36. And then Saturday, really unseasonably temperatures hit a high of 51 degrees and an overnight low of only 33. It becomes very windy on Saturday with a couple of morning showers. So there's a storm that's going to be following the storm coming in tonight and tomorrow. So we're getting hit pretty hard here on Cape Cod, but fortunately it's not a whole lot of snow and is mostly rain. Now, looking at temperatures throughout the Cape, and as you all know, they're very consistent. Starting over on the west side of the canal, Buzzards Bay and Wareham both at 42. Coming across the bridge into Sandwich, Falmouth, 42, 43, 44 degrees for Sandwich, Barnstable, Mashpee, Falmouth. Same with Hyannis and Dennis. Chatham also and Brewster at 43, East Ham 44, Truro 41, and out at Race Point in Provincetown, 41 degrees. Now, water temperature, forget about swimming today. 44 degrees in Cape Cod Bay, low wind heights of only 1 to 3 feet, and a wind direction south-southeast at 6 to 12 knots. 
Out on Nantucket Sound, another non-swimming day with water temperatures at 40 degrees. Low wave heights 1 to 2 feet and again wind direction southeast at 8 to 16 knots. Heading on out to the islands. First at Martha's Vineyard, Oak Bluffs at 45 degrees for a high today. Same in Edgartown. Cloudy and rain in the afternoon, same as on the Cape. And moving further out to Nantucket, Nantucket Village has a high of 43. Wisconsin at 45. Again, partly sunny, but then moving into clouds and rain in the afternoon. So not the greatest day on Cape Cod in the South Shore today. And getting worse tonight and then Wednesday, that storm's going to hit us pretty hard with very high winds up to 60-some miles and 50 to 60 miles per hour and morning downpours. But then, as I said, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday clears up quite a bit with unseasonably mild temperatures and lots of sunshine. All right, there you have it, folks. That's the weather. And as stated in today's Tuesday, January 9th edition of the Cape Cod Times. Now, friends, let's take a look at page one of today's Tuesday, January 9th, Cape Cod Times. See what they have there in terms of local and regional articles. The first one here says, saying goodbye to 2023 with the subtitle of Burning Tree in Provincetown, Purges Distress. It's by Zane Razak of the Cape Cod Times Network. And there's a picture of a burning tree almost to the water level in the waters on some sort of platform with a gentleman standing beside it after having lit the tree. So here is the article, of course, with a dateline of Provincetown. Fierce wind and snow during the year's first nor'easter did not prevent the 30, 41st rerouters, that's R-E-R-O-O-T-E-R-S, the 41st Rerouters Day ceremony from happening on Sunday afternoon. About 30 people joined performance artist Jay Critchley on the beach across from the Harbor Hotel for his annual January 7th community ritual to say goodbye to the previous year. Critchley is also the CEO of the International Rerouters Society in Provincetown, a parody of the Internal Revenue Service. <clears throat> All I can think is that Provincetown is about yes, said Critchley to the group. Attendees brought non-toxic items such as old letters or photos they wanted to leave behind in 2023, and they piled them onto a small Christmas tree packed into a tiny wooden boat, which was then pushed into Provincetown Harbor and set on fire. The theme this year was Carbon Rapture, a play on carbon capture, while the chant was No Bra Si Erupt Pu R, whatever that means. Critchley led the group through Christmas carols rewritten to fit the theme and asked them a series of questions such as, quote, Are you a victim of weaponized loneliness? End quote. And, quote, are you experiencing self-carelessness? Quote, end quote. The post-Christmas post-consumption environmental movement dates back to 1983, 
When Critchley found a pile of discarded Christmas trees at the Provincetown dump, according to his website. It brings the community together to celebrate who we are as a people, the land that we're on, and to honor what we've been through, said Critchley. So there you have it, kind of a somewhat incomplete article, but I guess there's not a whole lot you can do to describe this, simply a parody. And it's the burning of a very small Christmas tree on a platform in the shallow waters, maybe three feet, of the bay there in Provincetown. All right, that's it. Let's move on, friends. This next article of local and regional interest is headlined, Governor Healy Announces Budget Reset. It's by Colin A. Young of the State House News Service. And here's the article with the dateline of Boston. Governor Maura Healey and her budget team hit the reset button Monday, announcing a plan to cut $375 million from the current year's budget amid flagging tax collections, downgrade the amount of tax revenue expected this budget year by $1 billion, $1 billion and to build the next state spending plan on the assumption that even less tax revenue will come in next year. By paring back spending over the next six months, tapping into investment earnings that are generally not used in budgeting, and planning for basically flat growth next year, the Healy administration officials said they think they will be able to get through the fiscal year 2024 without having to make additional cuts and can then build a balanced budget for the fiscal year of 2025. We expect that while the economy is growing, it'll be a bit slower. There are some positive signs. The interest rates not increasing and the prospect of them coming down later this year, I think, bodes well for what we're seeing in terms of our growing out of this. Secretary of Administration and Finance Matthew Korskowitz said Monday, So we see this pretty much as creating a glide path to fiscal year 26. We see this as sort of a 12 to 18 month condition where we have to do some belt tightening. But overall, we think that, well, we don't see this as being a recessionary environment at all, and we believe the economy will continue to grow in fiscal year 25. Halfway through the fiscal year 2024, the state has collected $769 million, which is 4.1% less tax revenue than the projections used to craft an annual budget featuring steep spending increases and a record bottom line of $56 billion. It's not that tax revenue has declined. In fact, tax revenue has increased a bit compared to the same point one year ago, which is up $60 million or 0.3%. But the limited revenue growth has not been enough to line revenue up with Beacon Hill's appetite for spending. To address what the governor said is a budgetary shortfall totaling $1 billion, and to reset the foundation for future budgets, the Healy administration announced a multi-pronged plan yesterday. The plan includes $1 billion worth of 
solves, that's spelled S-O-L-V-E-S, to close the existing gap. A net of $375 million in spending cuts, along with $625 million in newly tapped non-tax revenues. The plan is meant to address the existing revenue shortfall for $769 million, while also providing some breathing room for the second half of the budget year, when Gorskowitz said he expects additional months of below benchmark collections. The governor's cut affects 66 different line items. Among those line items is a gross $294 million reduction in mass health fee for service payments. An administration official said there are no eligibility changes, but MassHealth had room to trim because the ongoing redetermination effort has eliminated more people from MassHealth enrollments than expected by this point, and because utilization of some key MassHealth services is below what was expected. A big portion of the non-tax revenues being relied upon to close the budget gap is expected to come from increased investment earnings that the state typically does not budget against. Gorskowitz said the current high interest rate environment helps the state generate more interest earnings on some of its various investments. We don't always budget against those because interest earnings, particularly in this type of environment, are very volatile. And so we usually budget against a pretty, pretty nominal amount, a pretty conservative amount of that. And so we know that this fiscal year will see increased investment earnings, and so a big portion of the $625 million will come from those earnings, the secretary said. The remainder of the $625 million in non-tax revenue will come from higher-than-budgeted department revenues, Gorskowitz said. He also decreased the fiscal year 2024 revenue estimate by $1 billion from the $41.41 billion figure that he and key lawmakers agreed a year ago to build the 2024 budget on to $40.41 billion, including revenue from the state's new surtax on income above $1 million. And Gorko Switz also announced Monday that he, House and Ways Means Chairman Andrew Mikowitz, and Senate and Ways and Means Chairman Michael Rodriguez have agreed to base the fiscal year 2025 budget, which Healy has to file with lawmakers by January 24th, on a consensus revenue forecast of $40.202 billion, plus an additional $1.3 billion in surtax revenue. So, friends, if you were able to understand those many figures, the bottom line is there is seemingly a budget deficit and there will be a budget reset with some line-item cuts headed down the road. So we'll keep our eyes and ears attuned to that and see what cuts are in the making as the legislature and the governor try to balance the budget for fiscal year 2025 and beyond. And now staying on page one and staying with money matters, I'm going to share with you this next article of a national interest 
It's entitled, House Reaches Deal to Avoid Shutdown. This is from the USA Today Network. Here's the article, friends. Congressional leaders have come to a funding agreement to try to avoid a government shutdown that would hurt millions of Americans. Lawmakers reached a $1.66 trillion spending agreement to keep the government's doors open in 2024, including $886.3 billion in in defense spending and $773 billion in domestic non-defense spending. These figures are in line with the deal President Joe Biden and former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made last year during tense debt ceiling negotiations. But Congress and the country aren't out of the woods yet. The full House and the Senate still have to pass the agreement and send it to President Biden's desk before a government shutdown sets in for the nation. Funding for federal transportation programs, housing and food plans, and other resources is still yet to expire on January 19th, 10 days from now. The deadline for the Department of Health and Human Services, Commerce, Labor, State, and Defense comes two weeks later on February the 2nd. A government shutdown means all officials and federal agencies that aren't deemed, quote, essential, end quote, have to stop their work. Thousands of federal employees would be furloughed, and it could hit nutrition benefits and other programs Americans rely on, even if they don't work for the federal government. House Speaker Republican Mike Johnson passed the latest funding extension to avoid a government shutdown in November with more Democratic votes than Republican votes. He faces the possibility of conservative rebels in the House ordering additional cuts before they'll support a deal, demands they made during spending battles last year. Johnson acknowledged in a letter to House lawmakers that the agreements, quote, will not satisfy everyone, and they do not cut as much spending as many of us would like, end quote. Nonetheless, he called the deal between lawmakers the most favorable budget agreement Republicans have have achieved in over a decade. Biden said in a statement Sunday afternoon that the framework, quote, moves us one step closer to preventing a needless government shutdown and thus protecting important national priorities, end quote. But he still warned that congressional Republicans must do their job, stop threatening to shut down the government, and fulfill their basic responsibilities. All right, there you have it, friends. It looks fairly favorable at this point that there will not be a government shutdown in the very near future. Again, keeping our eyes and ears tuned to that. All right, moving Let's now take a look at the various lottery situations and results. And starting with the Mega Millions and Powerball, the Mega Millions jackpot is $165 million. Someone last week won the huge Powerball jackpot, so that is now only at $60 million. So let's take a look now at the most recent winning numbers, not only here in Massachusetts, but also nationally. 
So yesterday, Monday the January 8th, the midday drawing here in Massachusetts, the numbers drawn were these. One, seven, five, and three. That's the midday drawing for the numbers game. One, seven, five, three. Now the evening drawing for the numbers game, here are those numbers for yesterday, the 8th of January. Seven, seven, two, four. Seven, seven, two, four. Now, Mass Cash, again, yesterday, here are those numbers for January the 8th. 2, 4, 9, 24, 32. Again, Mass Cash for yesterday, 2, 4, 9, 24, and 32. Now, yesterday, again, January 8th, drawing for Powerball. Here are those numbers. 7, 17, 28, 40, and 45, with a Powerball number of 2. Again, repeating, Powerball yesterday, 7, 17, 28, 40, 45, with a Powerball of 2. Now, Mega Millions. That drawing was held last Friday, January the 5th. Here are those numbers. 5, 23, 26, 38, and 44, with a Mega Ball number of 25. One repeat, 5, 23, 26, 38, 44, and a Mega Ball of 25 were the winning numbers for the Mega Millions held last Friday the 5th of January. So, for those of you who play, as I always say, good luck players. Hopefully someone locally will win something big one of these days. I'd like it to be me or you. All right, moving on to page three, the Cape and Islands page of today's Tuesday, January 9th edition of the Cape Cod Times. Well, friends, this first article on page three recaps the storm that we had over the weekend. Fortunately, we here on the Cape were able to escape with just rain and a very light covering or dusting of snow. But this article says snowfall totals from the weekend storm are given here. It's by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times Network. And here is the Cape Cod received a skimpy serving of the white stuff, meaning snow, over the weekend. Perhaps just enough for a baby snowman or a few precious snowballs, but most likely not. But to the west of our slightly frosted peninsula, the storm brought more than 18 inches of snow to parts of the state. The paltry but pretty precipitation on the Cape will soon be a memory as heavy rain and high winds are in the forecast for Tuesday night into Wednesday with temperatures expected to be well above freezing. Maybe the next time we'll be able to unleash the sleds and cross-country skis from their garaged slumber. The the perplexing vagaries of winter weather are on full display in snow total data released by the National Weather Service for the weekend's past storm. The snow numbers are mainly provided by train spotters and members of the public. Many thanks to these chilled citizen scientists. Let's take a look at some of the snow totals from Cape Cod and beyond from a rather unpleasant weekend. So here are the snow totals from Sunday's storm. Mashpee, one inch. 
one inch is being gracious. Again, the same one inch for Falmouth, East Ham, uh, Truro, Yarmouth. East Ham had a half. East Orleans, a third of an inch. Snow totals from other parts of Massachusetts. Lunenburg, 18.8 inches. Lowell, 18.6. Worcester Regional Airport, 15.5. Framingham, 11 inches. West Springfield, 14. Foxborough, 7.2. Fall River, 4.3. New Bedford, 3 inches. And Logan Airport there in Boston, 3.8 inches. So again, we here on the Cape were pretty lucky. Mostly rain and a slight covering of snow, but other parts of the state got up to 17 and 18 inches, mostly in central to western Mass. All right, moving on, our next article here says, The Barnstable Commission celebrates 1948 UN Declaration of this article is by Ann Brennan of the Cape Cod Times Network with a dateline of Hyannis, and here, friends, is the article. More than 200 people gathered Monday to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights and to honor Cape Codders dedicated to preserving and protecting those rights. Eleanor Roosevelt, as the U.S. representative to the U.N., led the effort to establish the declaration, signed in 1948, after the genocide and ethnic cleansing leading up to and during World War II, said Jean Morrison, chair of the Barnstable County Human Rights Advisory Commission and MC at the annual event. The Declaration was created to be a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations, said Morrison, quoting Roosevelt, who emphasized the importance of people coming together in their communities beyond government to work for human rights. If their work does not have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere, Roosevelt said. Without concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. Those honored Monday for their work include Anne Burke, a committed advocate for transgender people and Cape Cod advocate for Fenway Health's Violence Recovery Program, who received the Cornerstone Award. The Nauset Interfaith Association's Martin Luther King Jr. Action Team and police chiefs from Chatham, Orleans, Brewster, and Harwich who have worked together to improve interactions between police and communities of color, they all received the Rosenthal Award and the Jenna Lifecott, an advocate for children, public health, and racial justice in Provincetown, received the Tim McCarthy Award. Unsung Hero Awards were presented to Patricia Cawley of the Duffy Health Center, Christine Drew, a probation officer, Natalie Froy, Covenant Care for Foster Families, James Matthews of the Cape Cod Community College, Dan Maville, Faith Family Kitchen, Chris Morin, Independence House, Cecilia Phelan-Stiles, Cape Cod Health Care, Cheryl Smith, Positive Alternative to School Suspension Program, 
David Thomas, Barnstable Early Childhood Programs, and the Family Pantry of Cape Cod and Health Ministry Incorporated. Okay, those are some of the references to the Barnstable County Commission celebrating the 1948 UN Declaration of Human Rights and some of the recipients of various awards from that organization. Well, as we near the halfway point of today's broadcast, we'll now move to the various obituaries, and it appears that we have two today. The first being that of Gregory F. Antone, spelled A-N-T-O-N-E, has a dateline of East Falmouth. Gregory F. Antone of East Falmouth, Mast, passed away peacefully at his home, surrounded by loved ones on December 31st. He was 69 years of age. Greg was born in Barnstable on January 23rd, 1954, to his late parents, Wilfred and Beatrice Antone. Greg had a passion for playing drums and had been playing since the age of eight. He also taught himself to play the guitar, bass, and keyboard in order to be able to write and produce his own music. He produced several of his own CDs over the years of his life. He was well known for his love of cars, especially his 1965 Orange Barracuda and his 1966 Purple Barracuda. Greg organized and managed the Odyssey on Wheels, which was a rolling car show for three years. Proceeds from the Odyssey on Wheels went directly to Hope Hospital. He had a television show on FCTV called Greg Antone's Rock and Roll Show. This show helped local musicians get a step up in the music industry. Greg was an avid Bruins fan throughout his life and dreamed of becoming part of the Bruins until a ruptured cerebral aneurysm took his dreams away. He was also a huge animal lover, having several cats and dogs throughout the course of his life. Greg is survived by his loving wife of 40 years, Trish Antone, son Nicholas James of Middleborough, and sisters Mary Kelly and husband Chris of Mashby, Lynette Grugine and husband John of Falmouth, brother Bradford Antone of East Falmouth, and various nieces and nephews. A funeral mass will be celebrated at St. Patrick's Church, 511 Main Street in Falmouth, on Tuesday, January 16th at 10 a.m., Burial will follow in St. Joseph's Cemetery on Gifford Street in Falmouth. In lieu of flowers, please donate to Friends of Falmouth Dogs, located at 150 Blacksmith Shop Road in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Our next, that was the obituary of Greg Antone of East Falmouth. Our next is that of John Evan Davis of Garden City. John Ed Evan Davis passed away on Long Island, New York on December 30th after a brief illness. John was born in Kingston, New York to Sherwood and Mary Matthews Davis. John graduated from Loomis Academy and attended Wesleyan University. He ran track and continued that sport while in the U.S. Army. He served three years, attaining the rank of Specialist 5th Class as a cryptologist in the Army Security Agency. John lived in Craigville, Mass., for many years and was self-employed as a carpenter and roofer. He traveled to exotic places and hiked much of the Appalachian Trail. John is survived by his brother Stephen Davis and his wife Kathy, his sister Jane Tertiano and her husband Bernard, and various nieces and nephews. 
he will be interred in the Calverton National Cemetery with military honors. And that, friends, is the very brief obituary of John Evan Davis, who formerly lived in Craigville. All right, moving on. Moving now to the lighter side of today's Tuesday, January the 9th edition of the Cape Cod Times. Let's take a look at the Ask Carolyn column, where... As most of you know, people from the outside write in with their issues, problems, situations, whatever, to seek Carolyn's advice. So the headline here is, how do you tell your mom to stop one-upping you with your kid? That's a good one. So here's the letter. Dear Carolyn, my mom adores my son, who is her only grandchild. In her efforts to shower him with affection, she sometimes steps on something that is special to me and to him. Example number one I give to you. My son was very much into sharks. I took him to an aquarium and bought him a shark's tooth as a special token from our trip. My mom, who heard him talk about it with lots of joy, showed up on her next visit with a much bigger shark's tooth, about four times bigger than the one I had given him. Example number two. I started a new job. My son told me he would miss me. Within my mother's earshot, I promised him that, when my workday was over, I'd take him out for ice cream and tell him a special story. I came home then to find my mom and my son gone. She had taken him out for the ice cream. Am I right to be miffed, or should I just delight that she loves him so much? And if I'm right, how to communicate my annoyance to my mom in a way that is not dismissive of her wonderful grandmother. Signed, Stolen Thunder. Here's Carolyn's response, dear Stolen Thunder. I'm going with, quote, right to be miffed, end quote, pending a third incident yet to come. Once is a misfire, twice is a cloud of suspicion, three times is a memo from mom that she feels competitive with you for your son's attention, which is a common trait as it is creepy, or creepy as it is common, that's the reader's choice. Anyway, part of what makes it so icky is that articulating it puts you under a cloud of suspicion too, unfairly. Mom, your three big shark teeth make my shark tooth look puny. Or that is, you're just trying to stand up for yourself and all you accomplish is to declare that you're now competing with her. I think your awareness of Grandma's competitive energy can be the bulk of the solution. It will help you remain mindful of her inclination to one-up you. It will help you make a habit of closing off your information supply the best you can and think long-term since the days of winning him with ice cream are numbered and to maintain your perspective. The last one is the big one. She's competing because she knows you're the center of his world. Her ability to dislodge you and take over is near zero. Trust that and go Mona Lisa smile on her clumsy attempts to have some of that gravitational pull, and right back when she buys him a car. Regarding thunder, here's another thought from someone else. I recognize your mom, I think. 
My mom isn't quite like that, but she does struggle to find things she knows my kid will like and appreciate. So it makes, or would make, total sense if she'd see something he already does like and think, okay, more of that would be even better. I think Carolyn is right that the odds your kid will prefer your mother to you approach nil. But if it's possible for you to direct her to something that can be particularly her thing with her grandson so that it won't conflict or compete with your special things or times with your boy, then that could be kindness to both of you. There you have it. Not a bad response to a situation provided by the reader competing for attention of the son with her mother, the boy's grandmother. All right, anyhow, moving on. Okay, friends, let's move into the area of sports. If you happen to stay up and listen to last night's college national championship game, you know that the University of Michigan defeated the University of Washington to win the national championship. Michigan was clearly dominant in that game and deserving of the championship. Anyhow, they also will play the University of Washington again next year, October 5th, as Washington moves into the Big Ten Conference to join Michigan and others. The conference, instead of being the Big Ten, will now be the Big 18. However, still called Big Ten, a misnomer. Starting next year, the college football playoff delays tweaking a 12-team format. Here's an Associated Press article regarding that. The college football playoff delayed reducing the number of spots reserved for conference champions from 6 to 5 in the upcoming 12-team format on Monday, though the change is expected to be in place next season. College Football Playoff Board of Managers Chairman Mark Keenum, the president of Mississippi State University, said the Pac-12 representative, Washington State President Kirk Schultz, requested the delay. Keenum said he expected the board to circle back on that issue in a few weeks. I'd be shocked if we weren't a 5 seven playoff for this coming football season, Keenum said. For now, the playoff format for the next two years has spots reserved for six conference champions and six at-large selection, making up a 12-team playoff. The expected change to five spots for champions and seven at-large spots was prompted by a wave of conference realignment and the state of the Pac-12, which will lose 10 of its 12 members to other power leagues this summer. Oregon State and Washington State, the only two remaining in the Pac-12 conference, plan to keep the Pac-12 running as a two-team conference next year as they try to rebuild the league. The Beavers and the Cougars have a scheduling agreement with the Mountain West in place for next season. They're going through some issues, legal issues, that they're working on right now, Keenum said without providing details. They want to get all their issues resolved. With only nine full major college football conferences in place for next season, one fewer Power Five conference than when expansion was first agreed upon, the College Football Playoff Management Committee agreed to recommend changing the original 6-6 format 
meaning six conference champions and six at-large teams, to a 5-7 model. While the presidents didn't vote on the 5-7 change, they did endorse a proposal that for a conference to have a champion eligible for one of those five spots, it needs to have at least eight members in that conference. The only one of the nine major conferences that won't have that many next year is, of course, the Pac-12 with only two. The college football playoff board is comprised of conference commissioners and Notre Dame's athletic director. Keenum said the CFP hopes to have a new media agreement in place soon. The expanded format for the next two years requires a new deal for the extra four games added to a system that currently includes three playoff games and four of the so-called New Year's Six Bowls. The quarterfinals that will be played for the first time after the 2024 season are additional inventory not covered by the current CFP TV deal with ESPN that has two remaining seasons in the contract. College football playoff executive director Bill Hancock said the threats directed at him and members of the selection committee after Florida State was left out of the playoff with a perfect record led to the CFP arranging for extra security for some members. Hancock said committee members received not just threats on social media, but calls and emails sent to them threatening their homes and personal safety. We've been in contact with with the FBI. Some of it was really unfortunate. So revenue sharing, left undecided, was a revenue distribution issue that for now just involves Southern Methodist University, which is leaving the American Athletic Conference to join the Atlantic Coast Conference next year. Revenue distribution in the 12-team format will guarantee each school a set amount, $6 million for Power 5 schools and $1 million for schools in so-called Group of Five Conferences. The commissioners have not yet agreed whether SMU should receive a full Power 5 share for the next two years and whether a moratorium should be placed on full shares for schools moving up beyond the year 2026. So there's a reference to the upcoming college football playoff, which will be 12 teams instead of four as it was this year, 12 teams beginning next year. So it's going to be real interesting to see how college football continues to evolve, not only with the playoffs, but with name, image, and likeness monies, conference affiliations, and so forth and so on. Well, friends, as you know, the New England Patriots finished a miserable season at 4-13, the worst record in Bill Belichick's career since taking over the Patriots. They finished, of course, last in the Eastern Division of the American Football Conference. And who knows what the future holds. But this article says Bill Belichick addresses the future amid uncertainty as the Packers head coach. Here's the article. Amid uncertainty over his future as Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick said Monday morning he's still, quote, heavily invested, end quote, in the organization. Belichick met with the media via 
video conference call on Monday morning and offered in his opening statement that he's, quote, under contract, quote, with the Patriots and plans to do what he always does. Every day I come in, I work as hard as I can to help the team in whatever way I can. That's what I'm going to continue to do. Today was kind of a wrap-up day with the players. We'll have a meeting with them and then go from there. As far as any decisions or direction or anything like that for next year, it's way too early for that. Belichick said he will meet with owner Robert Kraft, but did not disclose when that meeting would be. He said it could even be a series of meetings. The longtime coach was asked if he would be willing to relinquish personnel control to stay on as the head coach, and he said he would be willing to do whatever it takes to help the organization, implying that the answer would be yes, he would give up personnel duties and that of a general manager and would focus only then on coaching. I'm sure there will be continued articles and references about Belichick and his future with the Patriots in the days ahead. More to come on in professional basketball and professional hockey. Boston teams, the Celtics and the Bruins continue to lead their divisions and continue to play very well. Boston leads Philadelphia in the National Basketball Association by four and one-half games. And the Boston Bruins are ahead of the Florida Panthers in the Atlantic Division of the Eastern Conference. So continued good luck to them, and we'll watch them now that the football season is pretty much over. Except, of course, for the NFL playoffs, which will begin this coming Saturday and Sunday. In men's college basketball, just for a point of reference, Purdue of the Big Ten Conference continues to be number one in the nation, followed by Houston, Kansas, the University of Connecticut, Tennessee, Kentucky, and North Carolina as the top seven. In women's college basketball, South Carolina continues, as they have all season, to lead the way, followed by UCLA, Iowa, Baylor, and Colorado. The UConn team, under Coach Gino Oriema, is currently 13th in the country with a record of 12 wins and 3 losses. Well, friends, having exhausted all the articles of the local or regional or state interest, let's turn back now to those of a national interest. And here, this one says, nations will plan for the future of Gaza. Countries had resisted United States calls for reconstruction. This article is by Matthew Lee of the Associated Press with a dateline of Al-Ula, Saudi Arabia. And here's the article. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said Monday that four key Arab nations and Turkey have agreed to begin planning for the reconstruction and governance of Gaza once Israel's war against Hamas does end. Blinken, who is on an urgent Mideast mission aimed primarily at preventing the conflict from spreading as fears rise of a regional war, said Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates and Turkey would provide and consider participating in and contributing to day-after scenarios for the Palestinian territory, which has been devastated by three months of deadly Israeli bombardment. 
Those countries had previously resisted U.S. calls for post-war planning to begin, insisting that there must first be a ceasefire and a sharp reduction in the civilian suffering caused by Israel's military response to Hamas and the deadly attack of October 7th. But on what is now his fourth trip to the Mideast since the war began in October, Blinken said those countries are ready to start such planning and that each would consider its own involvement in whatever is eventually decided upon. Everywhere I went, I found leaders who are determined to prevent the conflict that we're facing now from spreading, doing everything possible to deter escalation to prevent a widening of the conflict, said Blinken, as he told reporters who were traveling with him. Blinken also made the comments after meeting Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at the Saudi royal's winter camp outside the ancient trading city of Alula in western Saudi Arabia. Blinken had earlier visited Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. The leaders of those countries agreed to work together, and to coordinate our efforts to help Gaza stabilize and recover, to chart a political path forward for the Palestinians, and to work toward long-term peace, security, and stability in the region as a whole, Blinken said. He said also they are prepared to make the necessary commitments to make the hard decisions to advance all these objectives and to advance this vision for the region. Blinken did not offer specifics on potential contributions, financial and in-kind support from the UAE and Saudi Arabia, which could be essential to the success of any plan. Arab states have been highly critical of Israel's actions and had eschewed public support for long-term planning, arguing that the fighting must end before such discussions can actually begin. They've been demanding a ceasefire since mid-October as civilian casualties began to skyrocket. Blinken said he would bring the Arab commitments to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet, as well as Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas, on Tuesday and Wednesday before presenting them to Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and returning to Washington. Any post-war plan for Gaza will require both Israeli Israeli and Palestinian buy-in, but Netanyahu and his government have their own ideas for Gaza's future that the others will likely not accept. And Netanyahu remains opposed to the concept of the two-state resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, something that Saudi Arabia in particular is demanding if it is to normalize relations with Israel. Blinken said Prince Mohammed remains interested in normalizing relations with Israel, but it will require that the conflict end in Gaza, and it will also clearly require that there be a practical pathway to a Palestinian state. This interest is there, it's real, and it could be transformative, he said. Israel has refused to agree to a ceasefire, and the U.S. has instead called for a specified temporary humanitarian humanitarian pauses to allow aid to get into Gaza and for people to get to safety. Another urgent priority for Blinken is to surge humanitarian assistance to Gaza. In Amman, Blinken toured the World Food Program's regional coordination warehouse where trucks were being packed with aid to be delivered to Gaza 
through both the Rafah and Karim Shalom crossings. The U.S. has been pressing Israel for weeks to get greater amounts of food, water, fuel, medicine, and other supplies into Gaza, and the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution on December 22nd calling for an immediate increase in deliveries. Three weeks ago, Israel opened its Karim Shalom crossing, adding a second entry point for aid into Gaza after Rafah. Still, the rate of trucks entering Gaza has not risen significantly. This week, an average of around 120 trucks a day entered through both crossings, according to UN figures, far below the 500 trucks of goods going in daily before the war and far below what aid groups say is actually needed. Almost the entire population of 2.3 million Palestinians depends on the trucks coming across the border for their survival. One in four Palestinians in Gaza is starving, and the rest face crisis levels of hunger, according to the United Nations. More than 85% of the people in Gaza have been driven from their homes by Israeli bombardment and ground offensives. Most live in UN shelters crowded well beyond their capacity in tent camps that have sprung up on or around the streets and in vacated areas. All right, there you have it, an unfortunate and depressing update on the status of Gaza and how nations will plan for the future of Gaza once this crisis and war ends. Here's another article of national interest. It's entitled, Biden Assails White Supremacy in the United States. President speaks at the site of a 200, or 2015 church slayings. It's by the Associated Press with a dateline of Charleston, South Carolina. Courting black voters he needs to win re-election, President Joe Biden on Monday denounced the poison of white supremacy in America, saying at the site of a deadly racist shooting at a South Carolina church that such ideology has no place in America, not today, tomorrow, or ever. Biden spoke from the pulpit of Mother Emanuel AME Church, where in 2015, nine black parishioners were shot to death by a white stranger they had been invited to join their Bible study. The Democratic president's speech followed his blunt remarks Friday on the eve of the anniversary of the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol in which he excoriated former President Donald Trump for glorifying rather than condemning political violence. At Mother Emanuel Church, Biden said the word of God was pierced by bullets of hate, propelled not just by gunpowder, but by poison, adding that for overwhelmingly African-American audience, what is that poison? White supremacy, he said, calling views by whites that they are superior to everyone else, a poison that for too long has haunted this nation. This has no place in America, not today, tomorrow, or ever. It's a grim way to kick off a presidential campaign, particularly for a man known for his unfailing optimism and belief that American achievements are limitless. But his campaign advisors and aides say it's necessary to lay out the stakes in unequivocal terms for three years after the cultural saturation of Trump's words and actions while he was president. And it's an effort to set up the contrast they hope will be paramount to voters in 2020.
It shows the campaign meeting the moment. Former Biden Communications Director Kate Bedingfeld said, We're facing a multiple and a fundamental threat to our democracy in the form of Donald Trump. And rather than a cookie-cutter launch, you know, here are my five policy platforms. He's speaking to people in a way that connects that and that lays out the stark challenges that are coming down the barrel. It was June 17, 2015, when a 21-year-old white man walked into the church and intending to ignite a race war, shot and killed nine black parishioners and wounded one or more. Biden was vice president when he attended the memorial service in Charleston, where President Barack Obama famously sang Amazing Grace. Biden's aides and allies say the shootings were among the critical moments when the nation's political divide started to sharpen and crack through Trump, Though Trump, the current Republican presidential frontrunner, was not in office at the time and has called the shooting horrible, Biden is seeking to tie Trump's rhetoric to such violence. Two years after the attack at the United the right gathering of white nationalists in Charlottesville, Virginia, erupted in violent clashes with counter-protesters, Trump said merely that there is blame on both sides. Biden and his aides argued it's all a part of the same problem, that Trump refused to condemn the actions of the white nationalists at that gathering. He's repeatedly used rhetoric once used by Adolf Hitler to argue that Immigrants entering the U.S. illegally are poisoning the blood of our country, yet insisted he had no idea that one of the world's most reviled and infamous figures once used similar words. And Trump has continually repeated his false claims that he won the 2020 election, as well as his assertion that the Capitol rioters rioters were patriotic. He's called the long prison sentences handed down for some offenders, whom he called hostages, and were convicted of crimes like assaulting police officers or seditious conspiracy, one of the saddest things. U.S. Representative Jim Clyburn, a South Carolina Democrat, said the election will determine the fate of American democracy, our freedoms, and whether this country will stand up against hate and vitriol embodied by Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans, a reference to Trump's Make America Great Again slogan. In an interview with the Associated Press before Biden's church appearance, Malcolm Graham, the younger brother of Charleston church victim Cynthia Graham Hurd, said he planned to thank the president for broaching the topic of extremism. Graham, a former North Carolina state senator and now a city councilman in Charlotte, said it was shameful that some politicians still struggle to link the Civil War and slavery and that others have attacked diversity, equity, inclusion programs for political gain. He feels the Trump administration was a preview of what it's like to have a new generation of unrepentant white nationalists in power. As a nation, we cannot eradicate racism, hatred, and discrimination if it's in the Oval Office, he said. We have to chart a different course. All right, friends, with the end of that article, that brings us to the conclusion of today's broadcast. It's been my pleasure to be back here in studio again to read to you today. And as I said before, this is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in Mashpee, Massachusetts. It's been my pleasure to read to you today. I hope you've enjoyed the session of today's Tuesday, January 9th, Cape Cod Times, and I look forward to reading to you again next week. Till then, uh, be safe, be healthy. So long for now.